The goal is to disappear behind our masks as pleasant, interchangeable helpers. It's tropical kabuki. Aloha. Happy to be here. We're on our honeymoon. You're such valued guests. Welcome to the White Lotus. Were you an asshole? I guess I'm just wondering what um, you might be able to do for us to make us feel better. No, I was actually trying to not be an asshole. That you failed? Sometimes just watching them eat every night makes me want to gouge my eyes out. Belinda! Belinda! What I want is to speak to your boss. <laughs> Fuck this place! Welcome to Labor Goes to the Movies. Elise is away this week, but we've got a double bill with our favorite labor culture commentator, Kathy M. Newman. Mike White compares White Lotus to Succession. He said on Succession you know you're not that family. Like they're so far away from you. They're like aliens on another planet. But he said in White Lotus, you want to be able to imagine that you could be one of these guests. So he wanted something in which the audience could identify with a little bit more so that the question of who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, that that's more muddy. Kathy also argues that many of the top Oscar nominees this year are laborific. If you look at these top 10 movies, they are all, almost all of them are about working class characters in a very significant way and giving these working class characters real humanity. Okay, let's start with The White Lotus. I think season one, although um, I I am curious about your thoughts on season two uh, from a class analysis as well, but I was surprised that I had heard a lot of people talking about it season one I'm talking about and I just thought this does just not sound like anything I want to watch rich people mm. at a at a resort and uh I must have read something or maybe you said something and uh I watched the first episode and I was like oh yeah <laughs> this is this is really interesting well I was reading an interview this morning with the creator and Mike White and All of his projects are really about class. So I think that he, um, and he told a really interesting story of how this project came to be. The pandemic had just started and HBO was desperate for new content. And Mike White had written and produced a piece, uh, two year seasons of something called Enlightened that critics and fans loved, but that HBO canceled. So he was like, wow, this is an opportunity for me to get back in the game. Um, The money he earned from Enlightened allowed him to buy a house in Hawaii. And he's in this little town with all these tech bros. And so that was sort of the inspiration for this episode of White or for this season of White Lotus was sort of being in this beautiful place with this kind of mystical, magical Uh, landscape and this native culture, but then realizing in what ways am I exploiting this community just even by being here? That was a question that came to him uh, really through having this house um, in Hawaii. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things, you know, I I have been a couple of times, there's actually a tennis club out on the West coast. Uh, It's a very upscale tennis club. And, um, 
just through a sort of a personal uh, connection, uh, I wound up in this place where I would I would never ever go otherwise, you know. And I remember walking in, and and it's just like in White Lotus. I mean, the people are, I mean, it's it's like it's like the one time I flew first class where they know your name. It's all about you, and for me, I, I felt at this at this this um, you feel. It's amazing feeling. And yet for me as a labor person with class consciousness, I'm identifying with the workers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what do you call that cognitive dissonance? I mean, it was, it, I, I didn't know if I was coming or going. Yeah. And Mike White compares White Lotus to succession. He said on succession, like if you're watching that, you know, you're not that family. Like right. they're so far away from you. They're like aliens on another planet. But he said in White Lotus, you want to be able to imagine that you could be one of these guests or that your super rich next door neighbor could be one of these guests. So he wanted something in which the audience could identify with a little bit more so that the question of who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, that that's more muddy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that, that I really responded to was that that discomfort a more general discomfort. I mean, it's something, you know, that when I when I go to my favorite tea place that I I, I used to go every day when I worked downtown, and you know, I I knew all the people behind the counter because I talked to them. I knew their names and knew their families. I mean, we weren't friends. They didn't come to my house, but I really worked to have a relationship because that's important to me. But I'm also aware that it's not. It's not a real relationship, yeah. right? Um, and that in in a place like in White Lotus, that separation and that, and, the, and the class, I think, becomes even more clear, right? Yeah, though I wonder if what you're describing is really, you know, your relationship with the people who run the tea shop, that is community. That is still a definition of community, that you're not in the same family, but you are in the same community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But but White Lotus is not a community. <laughs> you know, this resort is, um, it's kind of a performance. It's a show. And the emotional and care labor that the employees do is part of the performance. Can you talk uh, about, it's kind of hard to talk, but you don't want to give away spoiler alerts, but can you talk about some of the more sort of interesting or problematic relationships in in white lotus i mean jennifer coolidge's character who is the one character that is in common with seasons one and seasons two she's um you know this sort of insanely wealthy traveler but she's very lost emotionally she's come to scatter her mother's ashes in the ocean and she bonds with a massage therapist and really kind of gives her the impression that she might help her start her own business. Um, and I think that, again, we can kind of be both people in this scenario. I think our sympathy is really with uh, the massage therapist played by Natasha. Natasha Rothwell plays Belinda. Um, and so I think that we really, 
we really relate to both characters. We're kind of disgusted by Jennifer Coolidge's character, Tanya, because she's just so ditzy and out of it and clueless about her own wealth and privilege. I mean, we see it in her attempt to sort of, you know, have make a love connection. Um, and we see it in the way that Belinda, you know, kind of mothers her, right? She's mm -hmm. there to scatter her, her, her biological mother's ashes in the ocean, but Belinda is a kind of uh, substitute mother figure um, and is also not native Hawaiian so that we, you know, we have these kind of um, different hierarchies of race and class. Right. Uh, we have to say that the actress, the, the Belinda is black, which is, so it's, it is race and class. And then it, it, it's also to me, really those, those scenes were so uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, you know, again, like you talk about your um, feelings about the tea shop, like my husband and I have a place where we go and get massages about once a month. And, you know, it's something we really look forward to. But if somebody performs that kind of service, like, is there is it possible to have sort of equality in in that relationship? You know, I think it's a concern about you know, my own privilege. So I'm I'm thinking about those things as I'm watching uh, this show. And I think let's let's delve into that because I think that, that that's what kept me watching the show. You know, it's not like uh, succession where that's a world where you never could get into. This is a place that people can go to. Cruise ships, I think, are like this, you know, and a lot of people go on cruise ships. So these are these are places that are accessible to a lot of folks where you get this sort of faux, like you are a really wealthy person, right? Um, and 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 so I think white's brilliance in this is being able to explore class. And it's interesting because it's related to work in another way, which is my husband is a talk therapist and the massage has really become part of how he manages a job where he has to sit as much as he does. Mm -hmm. So these sort of, you know, again, the complexity of work and care and relaxation and vacation, what, what do all of those things mean? Um, I love Connie Brit Britton, Britton, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. She plays this, the CFO of a search engine company. Um, mm -hmm. Her character is Nicole. And I just love her as an actress. She's done so many interesting things the last 10 years. Um, and so I, you know, I think that's a character, like this is a character that really needs a vacation, right? But <laughs> they're saving money by putting everybody in, or like maybe they couldn't get an extra room. Like I can't remember the context, but there really aren't enough beds right. in, this, in their suite for all of their kids. Um, and then their kids are perfect representations of Gen Z, right? They're these kind of <laughs> woke kids. And yet they're, you know, and they're questioning uh, the kind of the colonial relationship that the mainland America has to Hawaii, but they're also um, really indulging in the pleasures of this resort. That, that, and again, we have to be careful of spoiler alerts, but that gives rise to this plot twist where, you know, they're trying to do right um, by the Hawaiian workers there and it does go so terribly sideways as as one would expect when one tries to 
you know, stick your nose into shit that you really don't understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the problem with a kind of surface political awareness. Yes, um, yes. And in the interview I was reading, Mike White talks about creating those characters as sort of himself when he was in college. Like, they're reading Camille Paglia and Sigmund Freud. You know, they're, they're you know, they're, I, I don't want to call them pseudo intellectuals, but it's, they don't have a deep understanding of um, hierarchy and power uh, or they, they, they are critical of their parents, but their own attempts to sort of make the world right, you know, are just not very well thought out. To say the least. <laughs> <laughs> Um, although it's it's interesting because they the they uh they're probably the closest we come to sort of sympathetic characters um but but even no, nobody gets off nobody gets off free in this I, I guess you could say right yeah i think there's no perfect character um you know belinda is maybe the closest thing we have um you know she's so warm she's so genuine um, but she's still somehow not a stereotype. Um, but I think that everybody has something that is appealing about them and makes you want to watch them. Um, but everybody is flawed as well. The other one I just wanted to touch on before we move on is the big one between the husband who uh, is there with his brand new wife and we should also talk about her as well. She's a really key character. Um, this is Rachel and Shane. Is that? Thank couple. you, thank you. I've got all. I got season one and season two all mixed up in my head. So it's okay. In in both seasons, Mike White has created a sort of in between character who has a lot of power and control in the world. And here, mm -hmm. that character is Armand. He's um, a recovering drug addict. He's been clean for five years. He's gay. And he runs the resort, but he's not wealthy. You know, he's he's a he's a middle manager. Um, and so then there's this conflict between Shane and Armand. Shane's the uh, really douchey real estate guy, and then Armand is the um, person whose job is to always be polite and respectful. Um, and the the conflict between them runs for the entire uh, six episodes. Um, and so I think that I, I, I think that we are embarrassed by Shane. We are like his wife who, um, she writes, you know, she writes for Buzzfeed or something like that. Right. You know, she's, she's like a lightweight internet journalist and, you know, very relatable. Oh yeah. Um, uh, but doesn't really belong in this world and doesn't belong with someone who's so ungrateful. Yeah, I wanted you to talk a little bit about her. I thought her her character um, was. I found myself thinking about her long after the series, mm -hmm. and and um, I actually thought that that I, I would just say I thought that that relationship and that character worked so well that in season two the similar character. I don't think works as well. And as a result, I actually think season two, which I think suffers for a lot of other reasons and we don't really have to get into it because I thought the class consciousness in, in season two 
was was much much less shocking mm-hmm. and 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 so much more opportunity because it's set in a country where they have a much stronger working class and a stronger labor movement and yet it's almost completely been ditched i was i was very disappointed to be honest i i would highly recommend season one for any labor folks anybody interested in class but i thought season two i would i i didn't like it yeah it's interesting in season two the the characters who are presented as the most sympathetic working class characters are prostitutes thank you which is such a trope yes and the working class british kid is also a prostitute right the the there's basically one male prostitute and two female prostitutes who are the most working class characters in the show with with the classic heart of gold so so disappointing i mean I, that was what was so weird was i thought he got so much right in season two in season one and i thought he got so much wrong in season two um and it almost felt to me and this is just me being me but I, I almost felt, you know, he's very comfortable in Hawaii. I think he knows Hawaii. I don't think he knows. Uh, it's, it's Italy, I think, right? Was where the, yeah, it, yeah. I keep thinking Spain, but no, I don't think he knows Italy. That could explain the difference because there was like a knowingness that I think came that was reflected in season one, which which makes sense because he's been living there for, for part of the year since I think the, the mid 2000 teens. I will say there is a fun kind of plot um, that does show a kind of working class resistance in season two. Um, there's a trio of characters and uh, is it Murray Abraham? Like he, oh, is, yeah. he plays this amazing <laughs> kind of lecherous American uh, grandfather and he and his son and grandson are there to find their relatives and they do finally come upon their, you know, same named relatives. And it's a bunch of women who can't speak English and who chase them off of their property. <laughs> My favorite rooms. scene. My favorite scene. I so there you scene. go. That's like the one moment of, uh, of a t- you know, they're like, basically they're saying, we don't care about you. The fact that you're genetically related to, to us is of no importance. So that did feel uh, like a moment of resistance. But making the main sympathetic characters prostitutes, and I'll just tell you a very funny aside, which if you've, I'm sure you've seen the movie Elf. If you haven't, you definitely should. It's a great Christmas movie that has a class Will Ferrell. Point, point of view. But the the love interest is this great, you know, working class. She's an elf. She's a working elf in a, a department store and that's where they meet and they date and you know f- have a romance but in the original script she was written to be a prostitute i just think hollywood is just addicted to um sort of prostitutes you know as as these sort of sympathetic characters now you wanted to talk about a couple of the oscar nominees and i'm very happy to do that i mean we both saw Banshees. I'd like to talk about that. Okay. Um, and I think you had something to say about women talking Thinking everywhere all at once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk about those. But let's start with Inner Energy because I really did not like that movie. I went to a sneak preview of it and um, just hated it. I'm just going to tell people the premise. So um, uh, the Banshees of Inna Sharon stars Colin. Farrell, is it? Colin Farrell and uh, Brendan Gleeson. 
Brendan Gleeson. So, uh, and we're used to seeing Colin Farrell in more action roles and more romantic roles. And he plays kind of a, a nerd, a nudge, um, whose best friend inexplicably starts to shun him at the local pub. And then the the film is really about the conflict between the two of them. And it it it's just an inexplicable conflict. The his best friend finds has suddenly decided that he finds him dull and that he wants to spend his time uh writing and performing music. Um so it's uh, yeah, I'm I agreed with I agree with you. I didn't like it, but the landscape is stunning. It's an absolutely gorgeous wild Irish coast. Um, and it's set in 1923, but I felt like it could have been almost any year of the last 100. Um, you know, it's just got such an authentic, hard scrabble, poverty, but also utopian kind of uh, setting. The premise is not a bad premise, right? And I have to say that if you like those two actors, I mean, it, they are brilliant performances. They really are. But the the decision to cut out his longtime friend and then the uh, all the reviews I've read talk about the cutting off the fingers. So I think we can it's not a spoiler alert to say that. I mean, he says, look, if you don't stop talking to me, I'm going to start cutting off fingers. So if, and of course, Colin Farrell, I thought if Colin Farrell stops talking, it's going to be a very interesting movie. <laughs> right? So, of course, Colin can't start talking. The fingers start coming off. And the first one, that's where it lost me, to be honest. I was like, I can understand wanting to have some space and you know your friend's not getting it and you'd say something like you know i'm gonna i'm gonna stop returning your texts okay or i'm not gonna answer your call or i'm not gonna answer the door but cutting off your finger especially if you're a fiddler I, that that's the classic jump to shark moment for me and then so then you have to say well so is he trying to say something about you know, the Irish conflict, you know, that this is how people get into these, you know, mindless, stupid conflicts. Maybe, I don't know. I read a bunch of reviews and none of them really seemed to indicate that that's what he was after. So if it's not that, then what's the point of somebody doing something that extreme? Do I have a lack of imagination? Am I the Colin Farrell in, in this? Because I'm okay with that. I mean, I did. I actually did read a review that convinced me that it was a, a metaphor, a fable for a stand-in for the conflict because hmm. the, the the war is going on. We can hear it in the distance. That's one of the plot points. It's an eight-month skirmish, but if you think about it, like those, the war is still going on to some extent. So it's a hundred-year war that hasn't ended. So so from a political point of view, I think that's an interesting kind of metaphor. I saw it from a parenting point of view, and I'll I'll probably I'll tell okay. you how. Okay. Um, I work with a parenting coach, and I've been doing parenting classes for the last four years. She leads a group of parents every week. And we talk about this thing called undue attention. So when your kid's trying to get attention from you, if you punish your kid, they're actually going to double down on whatever it is they're doing. And so the cutting off of the fingers actually seemed like giving Colin Farrell's character undue attention. Hmm. That if he really ignored him, which is very hard to do on this tiny island in this tiny com community, but if he'd really ignored him, 
Colin Farrell's character would have eventually gotten the message and and maybe got left the island with his sister or you know done something with his life. So the the violent response and the throwing of the fingers against the door, you know, it 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 had the opposite effect of what he was going for. It it continued the fight. It continued the conflict. That actually that totally makes sense to me. Then it's even more annoying and frustrating because it's like well, dang, I mean, there's other ways to get attention, you know, but, but, you know, I guess you feel that way about kids sometimes too. So, yeah. All right. So you want to talk about everything everywhere all at once, which is great because I need to see it. So hit me. So you, I mean, you have to see this movie and you actually have to see it a minimum of three times. <laughs> wow. So the, the men, the it was co-directed and co-written by uh two men who made the video the videos for turn down for what which is a pop song came out five or six years ago they've got this very brash poppy funny style it's this very body humor and they brought all of that to this movie and they um so the story is about a a woman who owns a laundromat in uh, i think it's in San Francisco area and uh in the on the day that the film takes place her husband serves her with divorce papers and she also has to um bring all of her receipts and her sort of tax case to the IRS because she's being audited and she's in big tax trouble and Jamie Lee Curtis plays the tax uh worker so there's two workplaces the entire film almost the almost the entirety of the film takes place in the laundromat and the the home that's right next to it like it's basically attached to it or the IRS office building and so it's really a workplace movie and it's these two workplaces. Um, and Jamie Lee Curtis brings incredible humanity to this, uh, you know, this bureaucrat that we tend not to think very much about. Um, but it's a very confusing movie because it uses the idea of multiverse that we've seen in so many comic superhero movies but it brings it to an ordinary person's life. Um, and a lot of the conflict in the film centers around the main character who's played by Michelle Yeoh and her, her uh, teenage to adult daughter, 20 year old daughter. And so I have two teenage daughters. And so it's, it's, it's really, it, it, that's really kind of the center and the heart of the movie. Um, and the message of the movie is about like it's it's really about community and how we can't we can't do anything without each other. It's got like a truly kind of brilliant uh, communitarian uh, uh, moral um, that if you can follow it and you need to watch it at least twice so that you can follow it really comes through. I mean, I basically sobbed through the entire movie the first two times I saw it. Oh my god! I've, I've seen it four times now. <laughs> Um, the other thing that's really important to know is that they originally wanted Jackie Chan in the main character role, and he was not available or turned it down for whatever reason. So Michelle Yeoh was not going to be the, it was not going to be a female lead. 
Um, but they looked for like basically the next most famous Asian actor they could find who was Michelle Yeoh. So um, she's a she's basically a working class Chinese American laundromat owner as the star of this story. And, you know, I, I got into this this business of thinking about class and film from the point of view that people were always saying, oh, there's no good films about class or workers are always denigrated in Hollywood film. And if you look at these top 10 movies, they are all, almost all of them are about working class characters in a very significant way and giving these working class characters real humanity. Huh. Are you talking about the, the nominees or the, the, just... no, the, the best picture nominees? Let's just run through that because I had not thought of that. And frankly, I avoided several of them because, like, you know, I'm not a big James Cameron fan. I, I did not like the first Avatar. So, so how, where's where's the working class in in in, uh, in Avatar? Oh, I mean, if if you've seen the first one, I, I mean, have. Jake Jake Sully, and he's played by uh, a working class, uh, an, an Australian actor with a working class background, but he is a jarhead. He is a working class Marine who gets. Um, kind of drawn in to this native world on this other planet um, because he's part of a science experiment. Okay, that's cool. I got that. All right, Elvis, we've already talked about. That's uh, obvious. Everything, every, uh, now Fablemans? Fablemans is, is, is uh, uh, you know, is, is the story of Steven Spielberg uh, growing up. Um, so that one's a little bit less. Um, but Triangle of Sadness actually has a lot of overlap with the White Lotus uh, seasons one and two. It's about um, male models on a cruise. Oh, um, I did not know that. <laughs> and the last third of the movie, um, without giving away too much of it, um, some of the characters end up shipwrecked and a character who was a lowly worker on the cruise ship becomes kind of the queen of the of this desert uh, this deserted shipwrecked party yeah um so there's a real uh uh kind of upside down almost mardi gras type of world where the the low becomes high shades of uh swept away mm -hmm. um women talking is set in an amish community and i don't think you know we don't necessarily put the amish in a class category but i but there's clearly you know it's not a wealthy community um and then top gun i mean you know i think the original had a little bit more of a class feel this is this is varnished quite a bit more but still you have kind of a working class military ethic that that runs through both both films yeah i could see that i mean i i, I can't get past uh the 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 macho Tom Cruise stuff, but I, I think that's fair. I think that that was part of the the attraction of the the first one. And what about uh, Tar? And, and it, it's got that accent over it, so I never know how to say that. Is that, is that pronounced a different way? Or I'm not sure how to pronounce it. So, um, I mean, this really is about the elite world of, you know, kind of high octane classical music avant garde performance. Um. So this is more like succession, but in the music world. Um, but you're good. you're good at the elevator pitch. I like it. Thank you. But I do think, I, I guess, 
I am starting, once I start thinking about the world through this lens, sometimes it helps for me if I take it out of the idea of class and put it in the context of work. Yes. So yes. even TAR is about work. And it's also about the 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 challenges of being a woman in this elite uh, musical uh, world of conducting. And if you, you know, when have you seen in person a woman conductor? Mm, you know, I've never no. seen a woman conductor, you know, in real life, you know, in, in an elite musical performance. So right. all of these movies are about work in a certain way. Kathleen, wonderful as always. Thanks for bringing us all this class consciousness. And now I got a bunch of movies, but hey, I got the whole weekend ahead of me. So it's all good. So thanks so all much. All right. Well, thank you for inviting me to talk about my favorite subject. See you next time. All right. Bye-bye. That's it for our show this week. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, if you're enjoying these conversations about film and television through a working class lens, please be sure to like and share this podcast. Let's build cinematic solidarity. See you at the movies.